Hey, why am I his sidekick, all right? How do you know he's not my sidekick? Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another issue of Fireside Chats. I'm your host, Minty. And with me, as always, are my wonderful sidekicks. First, Baby Huey. What's going on? 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 And then there's features. Hello, Internet. I feel like you have to sing that now. Me? Oh, sure, why not? <laughs> we, we weren't going to get to that part yet, but why not? And then there's Mauer, but I don't even care. I want to I wanna hear you. <laughs> Menti, oh. just quiet down a little bit. Let the I toy can't. guys talk. I can't. We have... I have an issue know, there. That's a problem. <laughs> All right. All right. We have uh, what some might say is the Stan Lee to the action figure world. With us today. That's a, there you go. Uh, we have H. On Eric Cornboy Mace with us, and we'll get to all of those names in a minute because this is the <laughs> longest name we've ever introduced um, from the Four Horsemen toys. And welcome, Eric. Cornboy. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, Not warmed up. Amazing. That Not is all right. So I have to just ask right off the bat because I was doing research before you jumped on, and and I know that most people have like their nicknames tend to have a story behind them, and some people you can just kind of look at. Like Mauer, your uh, your nickname is uh, asshole. That's right. Uh, and yeah. then I got to know where Cornboy comes from because I feel like there has to be a story behind this that I could not find anywhere. Yeah, there absolutely is. I, it's, I'll give you the unabridged version, even though I've told this a million times. Um, it's It originally came when I first moved out to New Jersey from Indiana. I'm from Indiana originally. Lots of corn there. So when I first moved um, out to New Jersey from Indiana, I was working in a machine shop, and this Yugoslavian guy, uh, my friend Yovo, uh, came up and asked me um, if they had cowboys in Indiana. And I told him, no, cowboys, um, it's it's – that's more of a, a more West thing. I said, Indiana, like their big thing is not cows, it's corn. And he goes, oh, so you're not a cowboy, you're a corn boy. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> <laughs> and so everybody in the shop started calling me corn boy. And it stuck. I didn't give a crap. I've been called nicknames all my life. I'm a big guy, so there's a lot of nicknames people have called me. And then uh, when I started working at McFarland Toys early on, uh, one of my co-workers there who eventually became one of my partners in Four Horsemen Studios, Eric Treadaway. His first name was Eric as well. And one of the guys there said, well, his name's Eric and your name's Eric. What am I supposed to call you, Eric 1 and Eric 2? And I was like, no. I said, you can call me Cornboy if you want. The last place I worked, that's all they called me. And it just kind of stuck. And that's who I am now. I'm Cornboy. <laughs> I love that you just owned it. That's the best part yeah, about it. I don't it. give a crap. Similar to Mauer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you know what? And then Baby Huey, you know, 
This is just yeah. a lesson for you to lean into the baby Huey. <laughs> I don't think he has a choice. We didn't give him a many, choice. The name that's on the now? screen, did you give that to yourself, baby Huey, or, or did they no. give it to you? <laughs> Mr. Mowry gave me that years and years ago. We've known each other since, what, middle school? So, yeah. well, so baby, My mom used to call me baby, baby Huey sometimes, so... Probably for oh, a similar wow. reason why I call him baby Huey. Kind of a big, childlike, happy-go-lucky... Yep. Yep. Big, big, childlike, clumsy idiot. That's me. Yep. That's pretty much <laughs> it. That's, that's most of this podcast. <laughs> you can go around the horn, except for features. That's pretty much all of us. <laughs> Truth. But clumsy yeah, idiot. I'll I give him that. I'll give, it's just me. the big part. <laughs> yeah. He, well, he. Just, just because I find it funny, Features tripped over a, a, a dishwasher last night, which was hysterical. <laughs> How, yeah, exactly. How do you trip over a dishwasher is a whole other story. But yeah, clumsy idiot works. <laughs> All right. Well, let's actually start with accurate. the be- the beginnings of Corn Boy. Um, Corn Boy origins. The origin story of Corn Boy, but going back to the creation of, you know what has become your legacy if you will what kind of toys were you you know your were your favorites when you were a kid you know we all have toys of yours that are some of our favorites but what were the ones that you remember other than Razorneck monkey (laughs) (laughs) we'll get to that in a bit huh um my my uh biggest um collection i had when a kid with as a kid was uh the Mego 8-inch action figures, specifically um, the Marvel figures. I still have a box set of the uh, Fantastic Four Mego figures that are my, those were my holy grail. I bought those when I first got, got my first job in the toy industry at McFarland Toys, my very first paycheck. Those weren't very expensive at the time. And I was able to find them fairly cheap, and I bought all of them. Some of the boxes are a little bit beat up, but I don't care about that. The figures are perfect. And that was my grail. When I get my first paycheck in the toy industry, I'm buying those. Because I had them as a kid, and then they just kind of went away. And I have them again now. So the Mego 8-inch action figures, um, I love their Planet of the Apes, too. I had all those. I had a few of the DC, but I was a poor kid, so I didn't get to buy too much of them. But um, my other line um, that is, like, one of my all-time favorite is Micronauts, like the old Micronauts, oh, wow, also wow. by Mego, actually. Yeah, wow. Originally by Takara, but then Mego. But um, even later on, in the past, I don't know, 20 years or so, um, Takara released uh, some really awesome Micro Man figures that are the same as the old micro Micronauts figures, just better quality and obviously higher technological detail and stuff like that. So I uh, picked up a bunch of those too, but those are my two all time favorites. And I think that the, my obsession with Migos back when I was a kid led to my obsession with the uh, Mezco one twelfth collective stuff that I'm just nuts over now. It's funny that you connect the two of those because the fans that look at both of them now are so far and away, but I can see the soft goods, you know, yeah. it's a huge piece of it. Uh, we actually, uh, when we did one of our first toy reviews, I stumbled across Mezco. Um, it was right after the Black and White Judge Dread was released, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Oh, this is a cool price point. It's like seventy bucks. Maybe I'll just order one of them to see how they are." <laughs> mm-hmm. 
and then it came in, and now I've bought in at least two of everything they've released since. But uh, Same. connecting Migo to Mezco <laughs> is pretty cool. My my first Mez Mezco figure was the uh, Toy Fair um, Mr. Spock figure. I had oh, seen wow. the other stuff, but I was never a big um, Judge Dread or <laughs> never a big Judge yeah. Bre- Judge Dread or um, Punisher fan. They're beautifully done. I liked what they had done with them. But that year they brought in uh, Mr. Spock figure, and it was a giveaway at Toy Fair. And um, Pierre, one of the guys, I think he was the um, one of their um, promo type guys. Um, he was working there at the time, and he had been a friend of mine for years. And he brought one to me down at our booth. We had a booth there that year. And said, here, man, check this out. And I was like, oh, cool, thanks. And he knew I, I liked Star Trek. I'm not a giant fan, but I liked it quite a bit. And I pulled it out and started playing with it, and I was like, just brought me back to my childhood. And I was like, uh-oh, this is going to be a problem. <laughs> and since then, everything they release, I purchased. Not, I haven't bought two of everything, but a lot of stuff I bought two of, and specifically for the reason I look at them now and I go, hmm, what kind of customs can I do with that? What can I turn the second one into. I don't like keep them for scalping or whatever, but it's come to pass that I had some extras and and uh, started selling those online because I just don't need those extras of, you know, Agent Gomez and Spec Ops Gomez and stuff like that. When you were younger, did you do that as well? Did you buy multiple ones to, to collect and to, to play with, or did you were you just strictly imagination and playing with them? No, when I was a kid, I was poor. I was lucky to mm. lucky to get any toys. So, you know, um, the Migos, I think at the time, were only like $3.50 a piece, but I still couldn't afford those. So that'll tell you how, how bad off we were. But um, at Christmas time, I got, you know, mom and dad really unloaded on us and just dumped a lot of stuff in our lap. So now I never had doubles of anything, but I did have some toys that were, that got, had gotten broken. Um, like Migo, like, they were notor- notorious for that rubber band inside <laughs> getting broken. And sometimes uh, some of the older ones that used the metal rivets to hold the elbows and the knees together, they would break. Mm-hmm. And I would repair them myself. And rather than using those as the, the figures they were before, I would go ahead and just customize them. I had a oh, that's uh, awesome. Planet of the Apes, um, General Ursus or Urko, the one without the helmet, the black colored one with the kind of the pink nose. Pink I spray painted that. Dude blue and made him my Mego beast figure. Oh, awesome. <laughs> he didn't have any fur, but he was blue, so he Close was enough. a beast to me. <laughs> yeah, he was completely naked, but they always had like a pair of tidy whitey underwear on. I painted all that blue and he was wearing the beast shorts and That's he was awesome. the beast to me. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the customizing thing I got into at an early age, but I've never had the time to actually sit down and explore it deeply. And you know, if if I had broken toys I was I would do it, but I, I didn't I there's no way I could afford to collect uh, two of everything so you were always artistic even with your toys even as a kid yes yeah I even there was one time where I took um, a bunch of parts of toys like we would go to garage sales or something and, and there were like boxes with all kinds of stuff and I would pull things out there that kind of looked like techie or weapons or something like that and then it would build um accessories and stuff for my toys to like wear and make them like cyber guy versions of the uh, characters that i had and i even uh 
took some oil-based clay and sculpted a couple of figures and used those parts on them. Was going to film a stop-motion movie. I didn't know how to do it, but I <laughs> was convinced I was going to do it, and I never did it. The, the the two sculpted figures at the time looked cool, though, to me at least. So they just kind of nice. sat around. But yeah, but it, it's it's that creativity. So like, so if a toy broke and you had to go and fix it, or if you wanted a beast action figure and you had to create your own, it seems yeah. like those were the humble beginnings that absolutely led to an empire that you've made later on. So it's it's kind of cool how that ties very much into the world that you've now created. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would say so. And if it were for for Jim and Eric, my two business partners in Four Horsemen Studios, I never would have gotten to that point. I mean, obviously, everybody who's in um, any sort of artistic field in any way, they want their creations to be the one that everybody comes after. You know, I mean, getting to work on things like um, He Man and and any of the DC properties, and even Marvel for Toy Biz, here and there, we did some stuff. All that kind of stuff is a blessing, and you love it because it's stuff you loved growing up as a kid, and now you actually get to stick your hands in there and get them dirty making this stuff. That's awesome, and it's it's a blessing, but it's a bigger blessing um, having people appreciate the stuff that you know you're involved in creating and and bringing to life of your own. That's that's unbelievable, and I don't think that I ever could have gotten involved in any of that stuff if it wasn't for my two partners and at Four Horsemen Studios. Now, when you went to the Kubert School, mm-hmm. was the goal to do that for toy creation, or were you going down the other path? Because we have a friend, I'm not sure if you know, Ken Hazer, does the comic book Living Corpse, that also went to <laughs> the to the Kubert School, but to make comics. Like, his goal was to be a comic book artist. Uh, well, my uh, growing up, I always wanted to make toys. But you would turn a toy over and see made in Japan, made in Taiwan, made in China. I had no idea that the part that I was really into that I wanted to do was a lot of it was done right here in the States. You know, all the toys that I was buying, they were created here. And that's just the manufacturing part of it that was done overseas. So I didn't really have any aspirations to be a toy designer or a toy creator because I didn't know it was possible at the time. Um, then I went to the Kubert School. And I found out that, you know, through the years that it could be done, that there were, you know, big companies like Hasbro and Mattel. Like, you know, who am I to try to design my own toys? You've got these big companies. So I really went to be a comic book artist. I was a, a comic book and toy geek. So I went to the Kubert School to be a, um, a comic artist. But I'll tell you the story of how I actually got into toy design. And it was pure dumb luck, which is how a lot of my stuff works out. Um, I was working in a machine shop part-time while I was uh, going to the Kubert school and a guy that I worked there with um, said, Hey, there's this company that I talked to that they make, um, you know, toy dolls and toy trucks and stuff. And, you know, they wanted to know if you had a portfolio that you wanted to show them. And I talked to him and I'm friends with him. And I was like, Oh, okay, I guess, you know, it's, it's money and I can work in the toy industry. I don't know what I would be doing. And I was like, I don't really, my portfolio was crap. It was a bunch of, drawings of my own superheroes and stuff at the time, you know, a bunch of, it was terrible. So I took it in there anyway. I called and talked to him and I didn't know at the time who I was calling. He just gave me their number. And I was talking to the guy on the the phone who was doing the hiring. And he said, uh, he was talking to me, he goes, yeah, blah, 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 McFarland, blah, 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 Todd, Todd McFarland, blah, blah, Todd toys. At that time it was called Todd toys. And I was sitting there going, 
He did not just say what I thought he said. There is no way he said what I thought he said. And I said, oh, wait a minute. Are you talking about Todd Toys, the Spawn figures and stuff? He goes, yeah, that's what we make here. We're, we're the company that does the uh, Spawn figures for Todd McFarlane. And they were based right out of New Jersey, like literally 20 minutes from my house. And I had no freaking clue. And at that time, I had gone into the toy store. It could have been two months earlier. I mean, not toy store, comic shop. And the first wave of Spawn figures had hit the shelves. And they had, you know, that first Spawn figure and the medieval Spawn and some other stuff. And I was telling my wife at that time, I was like, that is what I want to do. Look at these. These are these are going to change the toy industry. Like this, at the, I mean, you look back now and they're like, what is, that's nothing now. But at that time, it's like, these are different than anything else that's on the shelf. Like the style, the look, the detail. And that's what I want to do. And then these guys are telling me, oh, yeah, we're Todd Toys. And over the phone, I'm going, oh, okay, all right, cool. Yeah, yeah, I can come see you. Inside, I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. <laughs> going, Holy crap, this is what I wanted. So I went in there and showed them my stuff. I'm sure they laughed under the breath at what I showed them. But they gave me a shot. They said, you know what? Come in, work part-time here. And I was working part-time at the machine shop still and going to school still. And I'm sure a lot of the work that I did over the years was garbage. It was just crap. And, and uh, one time the there's this, uh, what is he, the Violator, the, the bat spawn bad guy. Um, I don't mm -hmm. remember its name, Cyber Violator or... Cyber? Cy no, no, it's, it's Violator. But oh, the, there was like the a, mecha a one. Yeah, the mecha one that had like a the mechanical arm and the big mechanical jaw. Yeah. I made all the mechanical parts for that. Oh, I nice. fabricated all that. And that was my first big job at McFarland Toys. Like Eric sculpted, my, my business partner, Eric Treadway, sculpted the figure. And then I made all the mechanical parts for it. And at one point, a guy jokingly throws this little rubber octopus at me and says, here, see if you can make use of this on that thing. And I said, all right. So I cut the arms off and I glued it, that, that blade that comes up out of his back. Yep. I glued him onto that. And it looks like the... The uh, cyber violator is like growing up onto the blade a little bit. If you look at that, you'll see like little tentacles coming off. And that's wow. just from a rubber um, octopus the guy threw at me. And oh, that's so cool. That's awesome. There was a Ford symbol on there, like on the front of that blade, <laughs> but I don't think that came out in production. I think it was like they panographed it down because we were doing everything two up at the, at the time. Your but initials are on Cygor's arm, aren't they? Yeah, Cygor 2. Um, it's on the... Uh, shoulder pad eric treadway painted that figure and when he painted it because i did the big mechanical arm on him and his mechanical foot and excuse me some of the other fabricated mechanical pieces on him and uh, eric treadway painted that figure and he put uh, a little like monkey uh profile in a little triangle there and put hem underneath it for h eric mays and nobody knew what it was we told todd it meant high energy monkey so they ran with it. <laughs> so yeah, my initials are on there. Eric Treadway has snuck his initials in on a lot of um, McFarlane Toys figures over the years, too. The uh, the Mandarin Spawn figure has E.T. all over it. Like, really? The, the very first Mandarin Spawn figure that was released, he painted his initials in the flames at the bottom of his loincloth. There's an E.T. like right dead center. That's cool. And then on the side of his head, there's one of the things that comes out. There's a, a very... Um, obvious ET sculpted in there. And there's, a, I think, there's two or three others e ETs on that figure sculpted in somewhere as well. But yeah. So we interviewed Todd last year, and we uh -huh. talked toys and we talked comics with him. 
what was it like working with him? Because he is very, very intense, knows what he wants. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> and if the status quo is going this direction, he immediately goes, well, how about we're over here? So as someone new in the industry, one of your first gigs working for him, what was that dynamic like? Well, that's the thing. We were we didn't work with directly with Todd all that often. Um, the guys up in the front office dealt mostly with Todd, going back and forth with him on ideas and changes and and things like that. But us people doing the actual work, we saw Todd a few times a year, two or three times a year maybe. Um, and one of those was during Toy Fair. You know, he would come out for Toy Fair in New York City. He he's in Arizona. Todd is, and he would come out for Toy Fair, and then he'd come by the studio and you know, say hey to everybody and that kind of, so we'd meet him and talk to him and stuff, but we didn't really work directly with him that much. Um, we had a lot of back and forth with him, especially Eric had a lot of back and forth with him through the owners of um, the company that was doing the work that the, the company that was doing the design work at the time was um, McFarland Toys AEB. It was originally a, uh, a company that did like prototypes for toys and then Todd bought into them and made them part of his company. So it was a little kind of like a separate company from McFarland Toys, but owned by McFarland Toys because they also still did their own uh, other toy design stuff on the outside. But um, so we would work with Todd sometimes, but more often than not, the guys in the front office who owned the company did most of that work with him. But when he was out there, he was awesome. We had a, had a good time. But like you said, he can be very intense. He definitely has his own ideas and opinions, and I think that's what made McFarland Toys what it was back in the day. I think that's why um, he took the um, Spawn action figures around and wanted to get them produced by big companies like Hasbro or Mattel or whatever, and they were like, eh, they can't really do it that way. And he said, eh, yeah, we can. I'm just going to do it myself then. And he did it, and he proved them wrong. And now they, I mean, for a long time, they were playing catch-up, trying to do the stuff that Todd was doing. I mean, obviously, they've... They've done a lot of stuff, you know, uh, since then that are way above and beyond what they were doing then. But I think Todd and his uh, Todd Toys Company at that time were the catalyst for a new direction in the toy industry. And I was really, really, truly lucky to be even a small little piece of that. I, f I find it interesting, especially with Todd McFarlane playing such a big role uh, in your earlier years uh, in the toy industry and how it kind of parallels him in comics leaving Marvel to create Image. What led to the decision to leave to create your own toy house, especially with the Mattel deal right around the corner? Like, what how, was that a terrifying experience, or what was that like? Of course it was, yeah. But um, what, what happened there was uh, McFarland Toys was moving in a little bit different direction then at least I myself and, and Jim and Eric and another business partner that we had at the time, um, they, they were moving in a little bit different direction than we wanted to go. They were getting into more statuesque figures, you know, where the, the articulation, there was less articulation. What articulation was there, it was simply to maybe move the arms like this or something, you know, not a lot of articulation, which we always love toys with articulation. Not so much that it would make the toy look too robotic or whatever, but enough that it would, you know, you could get a lot of great poses out of the figure or whatever. And they were also moving into things like um, sports and military and things that we just were had no interest in whatsoever. Nothing against the people who were into that stuff because the work that uh, McFarland Toys did on that stuff um, was spectacular. It was fantastic. 
And uh, so we said, you know what, it's, I think it's time for us to just kind of look into things, doing something a little different. Um, but the, the big uh, camel, the, the straw that broke the camel's back was the year that uh, McFarland Toys, uh, Todd McFarland bought a $3 million Sammy Sosa baseball and then told us, oh, you know what, we can't, the company didn't do well enough to give out uh, holiday bonuses this year. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't really the catalyst, but that happened. We were like, what the heck? Yeah, it wasn't like, oh, we're angry at him and, oh, he spent money on a baseball instead of us. That wasn't us. We looked at it as like, this guy can go out and spend $3 million on a baseball? What are we doing wrong? Well, it's funny. He had said that that almost bankrupt him getting that really? baseball. Um, well, and it was all just a publicity thing yeah. to get the Major League Baseball to be like, oh, he's serious about baseball. We'll give him the contract. He went into a long diatribe <laughs> of like went what that whole thing was for MLB. Yeah. Well, he did. He did get the contract. He did a spectacular job on all the, you know, the, the hockey, the football, the baseball, the basketball, all the sports figures that they did were fantastic. But it really wasn't us going, oh, well, he could get, spend $3 million on a baseball. Let's let's leave here. It was us saying, wow, he could spend $3 million on a baseball. Why are we not doing this ourselves? We can, like, try to do our own thing with this. Mm. And uh, so we kind of, um, Jim uh, in particular had a friend who worked at, I think it was Fisher Price at, at the time, which was owned by Mattel. And he talked to him and asked him if, if you know, there was any openings like at Fisher Price or somewhere that he knew of that, that uh, they might be interested in, in working together on stuff. And uh, he said, I actually know people at Mattel that would be very interested in working with you guys on this. So we said, you know what, let's talk to Mattel. We flew out there one day and here's a good story. We flew out to Mattel <laughs> and we were like, we're meeting with Mattel. We better come dress to the nines and show our stuff. We had made a bunch of like, you know, our own prototypes and stuff that we wanted to show off. You know, here's what we can do. And so we brought a box of stuff. We had full suit and ties on going to Mattel. <laughs> we were carrying a couple of briefcases with stuff in them. We had boxes of toys. We set them out on the table. And as we're getting out of the parking, uh, out of the car in the parking lot and going up to the building, we notice people hanging out on the back docks taking breaks. And they're all dressed in like, Hawaiian shirts and T-shirts and shorts, and we're like, oh, didn't realize that this was a little bit more of a casual portion of the company than we were going to be expecting. So we walked in there all dressed to the nines, and and we looked kind of ridiculous. But I guess we made an impression. You know, they said, um, well. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess so. Um, they said, well, what? You know, after we showed them stuff, and they had people coming in from the design part department looking at all the the stuff that we had on display there and stopping and talking to us and everything. Oh, and when we were walking through there the first time, we noticed a couple of people looking over the top of their cubicles going, Oh, look, it's those guys from McFarland. It's like, <laughs> I think they thought we were there to pay, take their jobs. And that was not, not the, we didn't want that at all. So, um, the guys, they, there was people coming through there and everything. And, uh, one of the guys goes, so what, what did you guys, the, the guy who, you know, had us come in there. What did you guys have in mind with uh, what you guys want to do with Mattel? And we said, well, our biggest thing is we want to revamp and revive He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. And we'd love to work with you guys on that. 
And him and two or three of the other guys just looked at each other and looked back at us and goes, that's exactly what we were thinking. And wow. so right wow. there, it's just kismet. And we're like, all right, well, you know, short of bringing prostitutes in, I think we're, we're good. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're on the same page and let's party. So we, we uh, started down that path and we had a just ongoing every single day relationship with Mattel for what, 20 something years? Uh, recently, wow. we've been doing a little bit of work with them here and there, but not as much as we used to. All the guys that we work with, except for one or two, um, are either not at the company or not working in the the boys' design department that we used to work in, with. So um, we're we're not doing as much work with them now, but we still do do work with Mattel from time to time. But that's how things started with us leaving McFarland and getting involved with Mattel. We talked to them. And they said, "Yeah, let's do it." So we decided, you know what? Let's take the leap. Let's let's start our own place. And we did. And yes, it was terrifying. And it was a little rough at first until we got everything worked out with Mattel and got the ball rolling. But yeah, it until was... you bought those suits and walked yeah. in, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How hands on was Mattel when you guys were actually working with them? Like at first, they... very. very okay. At first, very, very, very hands on because they didn't know, you know, who we are, or what we were truly capable of, or anything. So. Um, they had a lot of design stuff that they that we had like every every little step of the way we were running things past and making sure everything was okay and we were on track. But at a certain point, I think it was about the time we got to the DC figures because we originally started out doing um, some Harry Potter pitch stuff back when the first Harry Potter movie was getting ready to come out. We didn't have any kind of um, reference from the movie or anything, so we just went by the books and, and images and drawings that we'd seen. And we did some Harry Potter figures for them to use as a pitch to uh, the movie company to try to win the license for Harry Potter. And we also did some stuff for Max Steel. We did some Hot, Hot Wheels design work for, like, play sets that were never released. And eventually we got to the DC superheroes and the Batman stuff. And they said, you know what, just go ahead and go with it and, you know, come back and show us what you guys can do. And from there, almost every project we had was, okay, here's the lineup. Here are the characters we want to do. Um, are there any changes you guys think should made, be made to that lineup? Let's, let's discuss it. And we discussed it and got the lineup solidified. They said, okay, here you go. Come back with us to us when it's done. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. And that's, that's the way it went. And it was, um, there were times where they came back and said, um, can we make a little change here or here? Or we take characters over to DC. Um, but that was another thing. Before this, before us, Mattel, when they started working on DC stuff, for a long time would fly out back and forth from California to New York, because DC was in New York, to get approvals and everything, even on our stuff. We would ship our stuff to Mattel. They would fly out to New York to meet with DC, then they would fly it back to uh, Mattel and then send it back to us if there were changes that be, needed to be made to these fragile clay sculptures. <laughs> um, that didn't last very long, though, because we said, well, we can go in there if you want. We can take the stuff in there and get approvals for you. And we started working with a guy at D.C. named David Irwin uh, for approvals on the D.C. stuff. And when we first met David, he seemed a little bit aloof. Like, we go in there, we were setting up all the uh, the clay prototypes and everything, and he was just sitting there just looking out the window on the city, not paying any attention to us whatsoever. And we got everything set up. We sat down at the table. We were hanging out, and he was still just looking out the window, like just <laughs> zoned out. And then he turns around. He gets started, and he starts looking at our clay sculptures, and he picks up one of the heads, 
It's like, yeah, this looks good, but it could have changes here. And he starts drawing on our clay sculpture with an ink pen. This guy we hadn't met it before. And then wow. he, he grabs an exacto knife and he starts like carving into the cheekbone and like the eye. And we're like, what is he doing? But we, you know, this guy, this guy is the guy doing approval. So we sat there and then when we looked at it, we we're like, oh, we kind of see where he's going with this. <laughs> And he was right. And from then on, he would like grab our stuff and he'd like push some clay around or like scrape some stuff away and then hand it back to us. And as much as it would upset us as as artists, you know, we got we you've got to have a little bit of a ego if you're an artist. We would look at it after he was done. We're like, you know, even if he would say, okay, this needs to be changed, and he wouldn't touch it, we would make the changes he asked for and then look at it and go, oh yeah, he was right. You know, we get upset and he was he was right, but um. Yeah, so we're, we we were um, valuable to Mattel in that way, in that they wouldn't have to spend all the time and money going back and forth and back and forth for approvals. We could just take our stuff right into them and uh, have them do it. Was there any weird like stipulations when you would get to work on a new IP? So if somebody gave like you got Harry Potter, you get to DC. Do they give you any weird rules ahead of time, things to avoid or things you had to do, or was it all through this approval process? Like, were you given notes like, you have to stick to this, you can't use that, you can't change this, or did that all happen just to the approvals? Um, there, was, there was some of that stuff sometimes at the beginning, not very often. I mean, the thing that we had to adhere to most often is that, you know, you have a non-disclosure agreement with our company, Mattel, and we have a non-disclosure agreement with Warner Brothers or whatever other company that they were working with on this stuff. So if one of our images got out anywhere, or a word of what we were doing got out anywhere, Mattel wasn't going to be the one getting in trouble for it. We were. I mean, Mattel would get in trouble, but Mattel would hammer us and probably dump us. So that was one thing that they stressed every time that we were working on a line with another client is that you have to keep this stuff secret. You have to keep this stuff under wraps. And there were a few times when things got out about certain things that we were working on, and they would call us and go, was this you guys? Did you guys release this? And they would show us the images and like, that's not our photos. We've sent you our photos. I don't. We don't know where that came from. And they would find out that maybe somebody inside at Mattel had accidentally let it slip, or it would be some sort of like a um, a promo that they sent to um, retailers that a retailer accidentally put out or sent to a friend or something. But yeah, that was the one thing that they stayed on top of constantly. Is that? And I, I understand it. We have non-disclosure agreements with our. Um, you know, our sculptors and our freelancers and everybody that works at the studio, you know, the stuff that we're working on stays here until we're ready to announce it or show it off. Or the company that we're working for, say, like Super 7, is ready to announce it or show it off. Well, so now I have to ask, with the the amount of leaks that have happened through things like Lego with, with you know, MCU movies and stuff like that, how much of that do you think is the studio versus an actual leak? That I don't know. I mean, I I don't... I have never, like, I've never been involved with a case where I think that the studio uh, leaked stuff. Like, Warner Brothers was very secret, secretive with their reference materials. We were working on Harry Potter and some of the other stuff that we worked on, the Batman stuff over the years. Um, even to a point where we couldn't get decent reference from them to sculpt the figures. Like, some of the stuff that was released by Mattel that we did, there were parts of the figures that were just wrong because... They would not release images to us like good, crystal clear images that we could use for reference. Mm. So I can't say that I would, I mean, if it was from Warner Brothers, I can't imagine that they had ever accidentally uh, let a leak like that go out. But That's I don't know about, 
Yeah, I don't know about from other companies. I mean, if they if they accidentally quotated uh, leaked something, that would be a real surprise to me because they were so secretive on the stuff we were working on. I can't imagine that they would. Lego just used it to stay in the news. I I feel as though they do this with all of them. There's so many, like pretty much every Marvel movie in the last five, six years has been, some aspect has been spoiled by a toy somewhere. Yeah. And it's hard for me to believe that it's not Disney going, yeah, yeah, let's, let's, let's get them writing about it over at, you know, comic book resources or something. (laughs) Let's, let's get a little publicity out of this, but I I, could see that happening. I want to talk uh, just to, to kind of go back to something you said earlier, which is when you create something of your own, and that's the thing that you're the most excited about. Like you get these uh, these awesome IPs, and and you are excited, obviously, to work on things like Chucky and stuff like that. But it's your own individual IP that you are the most excited about. So with the store, with the 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 designs that you currently have for for things like um, Mythic Legion and things of that nature, do you do the design first and then worry about the story and the world building? Like which part comes first, the story or the design? That's a good question. I mean, um, Eric Treadway, that Mythic Legions is his baby. Like he, every everything that comes out of that is stuff that came out of his head. Like he's prolific when it comes to stuff like that. And it originally started as um, Mythic Legions itself just started as a cool toy line. And it was going to be three and three quarter inch because we were really good friends with Matt Dowdy, the guy who does, at O'Neill Design who does the Glios figures. So the Mythic Legions were going to be three and three quarter inch, you know, knights and wizards and warlocks and monsters that could pop apart. You could reconfigure them and stuff. And when we looked into pricing for stuff, we realized, you know what, six inch, six, seven inch, whatever it is, six and three quarters, um, six inch scale stuff isn't that much more expensive than three and three quarter inch stuff. Sure, if you're going to do big monsters like trolls or you're going to be doing... uh, want to do play sets or you want to do some sort of carts or vehicles of some sort for this, it's going to be more expensive because they're going to be much larger. But the actual production cost of the figures themselves, it, the the difference was nominal. So we decided to go to six inch on that stuff. And it really just started as some cool knights and monsters and stuff. And then Eric started coming up with a cool storyline and character development that. on it. And it has just exploded into that. So, but on our all of our properties over the years um, that we've had laid out ready to go or have released, like Magma Core, Gothatropolis, Seventh Kingdom, all those really start with cool character sketches and ideas, and then we sit down and discuss it for the most part. Up until Mythic Legions, it was all of us sitting down and just going over stuff, and then Eric came up with these ideas for Mythic Legions, and he's just killing it, and we're like, just go. You do that, dude. That's That's awesome. But um, the rest of the stuff, we would just sit down and come up with these cool worlds and backstories. And we love have the characters having their own, like, bios and their own backstories and stuff. So that's something that we've done since the beginning. But it does it isn't, like, planned out, okay, let's do these drawings and then do this. Or let's do a storyline and then create characters go into it. It just kind of evolves organically. It just comes out of us. But um, we don't like just I, – I love toy lines that are just super cool toy lines. But for our own stuff, we just love creating, building these giant worlds and, and having the characters have, you know, backstories and background and history of their own that will eventually unfold over time. Well, it's such deep histories, too. Some of the lore of this stuff is, is so ex- expansive. Like the, yeah. the I, I know I heard you have a video game um, with, was it Mythic Legions is getting the video game? 
Yep. That's, that's in the works. Oh, is there, yeah, is there thoughts? Legions, to, tactics. Is there thoughts to branching out into other forms of media? Like, it, I love the parallels to your story and like Todd's story, or to even He-Man's story, which is the design and then the world. But the world is what allowed it to build further on. So, are you thinking about pushing beyond toys with some of the lore that you have? Of course. I mean, toys, that's our first love. All of us at Four Horsemen Studios, I mean, that's why we got into doing what we're doing as toys. But would we want to have uh, Mythic Legions or Cosmic Legions become a, a book or a movie or, or an animated series, something like that? Of course, absolutely. Um, the right opportunity hasn't presented itself yet. That's all I can really say about it. But that kind of stuff is in the works, and we are, are digging around. I love that answer. We, that's a that's a you can dig into that answer. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And we we've we've been lucky enough to surround ourselves with just amazingly talented people working with us that are going to help us achieve that. Well, you've even partnered with uh, Chris uh, Pinkerton. I think I'm saying his last name. Yeah. Um, who we have, uh, maybe Huey and I uh, have a majority of what we wanted of a diorama he built for us of a city scene but then he got too busy it turns out it was for a bunch of the uh, your stuff that was coming out so we got pushed to the side <laughs> uh, but everything that you do is for the idea of customization you know in mind which is unheard of for most companies you know you're not going to hear mezco go yeah customize our toys or you know going from there and huey and i go back and forth all the time over what it looks like in balance to like paint apps and articulation versus playing with it. <laughs> so my thing is where do you fall on the, the toy is going to kind of be a living piece of art. You can move it and articulate it, but in the end you want to set up something cool looking versus say the transformer fans who don't really care about paint apps or anything. They just want to be able to transform it back and forth. <laughs> my whole um my whole thing on toys is you take it out and play with it i've always i don't keep any of my stuff in packaging possibly to my detriment i mean i, I thank you I, <laughs> if it's something that I just, to baby Huey. <laughs> yeah if it's something that i decide later on to and you know i'm not i'm not the be all end all say all thing on this but uh as of right now you are it's, yeah <laughs> Um, if I ever want to move forward and like sell any of the stuff like those extra, I don't know why I didn't keep those. I had, like I said, I had three secret agent or no, just the, the original agent Gomez figures out of the package and on my shelf. And the only difference was they each had a different head on and maybe one didn't have the jacket on. And I don't know why I did that looking back on it. Just the, the sickness, I guess. But my whole thing has always been take it out and play with it. And, um, I think that uh, as far as, you know, whether you should, like you said, transform it and put it on the shelf, all my stuff I have on shelves around here, I don't really play with them. I, like, take them out and I, like, do stuff with them and I set them up in, in poses that I want to see them in, and then I put them in a fairly static pose and put them on the shelf. Every once in a while I want to take them down and I want to, you know, change out some accessories or like seem posed with some other characters that I've just got or something like that. See, now you just validated me. Yeah, they go, I'm a little <laughs> bit of both. You know, I always open them, but they always end up posed on the shelf. And I like, I like them to be displayed and, 
you know, out in the open and everything. But so it's it's a little bit of both with me. You know, I, I love playing with the toys. I don't really have a lot of time to do it anymore. But um, once I'm done playing with them, I mean, they get static pose, just a regular straightforward pose and go right up on the shelf in rows. Do you, um, with with playing with the toys, uh, with, with the articulation that we mentioned before, uh-huh. do you prefer the toy to have more articulation or less? Or how do you how, how do you feel about that? I know you said That's you left the, you left because of the static pose, but yeah. do you want it to have you know all the articulation, or would you rather kind of somewhere in the middle? That's the question for the ages that everybody fights and argues for over, isn't it? The uh, you know how much articulation figures should have. I think that a figure that should be super articulated should be would be something like Spider Man. You know that dude needs double knees, double elbows. He needs the the butterfly and the shoulders, you know, all those extra points of articulation, somebody like that or Robin or somebody, they need that kind of articulation. The thing doesn't. Mm. The thing, you give him single elbow, you give him fists that you can pose, you give, and he doesn't need open hands. He needs fists. It's a thing. <laughs> He's going to punch stuff. <laughs> um, maybe if you got him holding Dr. Doom up by the neck and, and getting ready to punch him, that's one thing. But, you know, he needs, like, single knees and and – he doesn't need the double knee and double elbow. So in different for different figures, different circumstances, they need different uh, posable aspects to them. Like these big uh, Mattel um, dinosaurs that they did, these big giant things, you just, you know, they have enough articulation to get them stand there and look cool, and I'm fine with that. Once I get them posed in a, a pose that I want them, I'm fine with that. They don't need to have knees and elbows or... I, I don't even, they don't have elbows, but like what elbows would be? <laughs> you know, they don't really need to have that. They don't need like a multiple articulation points in their neck. You know, they look good the way they are. So it depends on the, the figure. Like this guy here doesn't have any articulation at all. And he's my favorite <laughs> figure that I have in my whole collection. Now, <laughs> what about companies, you know, like SH Figure Arts, where there is so much articulation, but to me, Unless you figure out the perfect pose for that figure, the joints are so ugly that I don't want to spend the money, you know, ninety, a hundred dollars on that figure, um, because unless you figure out a way where you're looking at it in a certain angle that hides all of that, to me, yeah. the butterfly chest joint, the double elbows just take away from everything. I do agree with that. I I, I don't have any SH figure arts uh, figures, but I have a bunch of the SH monster arts. The the Toho Godzilla stuff, that stuff is beautifully done because they've taken that high level of articulation on the figures and they've hidden them so well, they're almost not noticeable. You know, if you have them up close and you're posing them, you can see them. But in, in most cases, that articulation isn't, isn't very noticeable and they've done a spectacular job there. There was a line of figures, can't remember the name of it year, uh, from years ago, but they use these like ball joints that were like clicky and popped into place and their figures were about this tall and they did a great job on the sculpting and the design of the figures themselves but when i got them in hand i just didn't like them because the joints just look so ugly so i don't like that when they you know when they over articulate a figure they create articulation that you know stands out too much when you have it posed and like you said you know you put it in a certain pose then you can hide it a little bit, but I don't like having to do My six-inch figure to. doesn't need individual knuckle articulation. <laughs> no. 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 No, they had that. They released a giant Spider-Man years ago that had individual knuckles. 
that was awesome. On that size of figure, that was fantastic. You'd be able to do all that stuff. Doesn't need it on a six inch. Like every figure need... had two two joints on it. You right. Can actually, you can yep. actually do this with it. Yep. Who? I, I just out of curiosity, the audience that you have, do you find that they 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 clamor more for the the posability, the the statue esque kind of look, <laughs> or the playability? Like who, oh, the only reason I ask this is because Mauer and Baby Huey are quite literally opposite on these things. Like it, li- it literally breaks down the middle between the two of them. That's so a loaded yours. Question. Is it a loaded? Yeah, is it a loaded question? All right. Yeah. Here we go. Well, that's the thing. I mean, there's differing opinions. I don't think that there's there's one overall consensus um, on our fan base on what they want more because a lot of people want more articulation. A lot of people are fine with the way it is. Um, I don't like statuesque figures. I like to be. I like them to at least have knees and elbows, hips, shoulders, head, uh, maybe ankles or whatever, so you can get them in decent poses. But I don't, I don't really like statuesque or pre-posed uh, figures, so we'll never get to that point. Well, that's why I um, like Mezco and like Hot Toys, because it hides the joint. So if they want to put yeah. a double elbow, I'm not seeing it, and I can still pose it. Yep, I uh, agree. I've seen a lot of double elbow figures that they look cool when they're in a certain pose, but then you bend them, and they have that big flat spot across the back, and it looks like... You know, your your elbow doesn't, doesn't it makes a V bend. out of you. Yeah, it doesn't bend parallel with the the upper arm. The lower arm doesn't. It comes to that point, and that's it. <laughs> so there's no reason to have it bend any farther. It's there, you, your arm just won't do that. Especially when you're as fat as I am, it doesn't do that. When you uh when you guys are designing a, a figure or a line for a company, does the uh, company like Mattel or something tell you how much articulation to put into it, or is that up to you guys? They can, like um, way back when we first started on uh, the He-Man, the Masters of the Universe line, the first prototypes we built had a lot more articulation oh, really? than the, 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 two, the 2000, 2000X figures. Oh, the 2000X one, okay. Those yeah, like... they had a lot more articulation than um, they eventually ended up having. Um, we had they could have probably elbows, they had ball joint <laughs> under rib cuts where they could you know do the, the bend and the turn and stuff under the ribs. They had knee articulation. And um, I guess Mattel did some uh, kid testing, and they thought that that was going to be too too much articulation for kids to get into and really be rough and play with. So they had us cut the articulation down on it a bit. But, yeah, there's times when companies will tell us, you know, what they do and don't want. Um, Super 7 tells us, um, like, the type of articulation that they want their Ultimates figures to have, and, you know, we adhere, adhere to that general style, depending on the character some Characters need different type of articulation depending on how they're built. Yeah, the uh, the company that we're doing work for usually lets us know what type of articulation they want the figure to have. All right, thigh cut, pro thigh cut, <laughs> or uh, against thigh cut. It depends on where it's at. It depends on the shape of the character's thigh. Um, a lot of times you can do the thigh cut really high up near the crotch area, and it's not too too invasive because at that point there's not like any striations in the musculature that would cause it to look odd if it's twisted but when it's lower on the leg i don't like it because as soon as you turn it it just doesn't look real anymore it looks it's, i've wild. got it over there there is a gambit figure that has like a mid thigh cut and with gambit's yeah. costume having the bright pink squares on the side oh, the yeah, second you turn it it is the ugliest looking like i <laughs> and we can never pose it that way because of how bad it looks 
Again, but, that's why why soft goods are best. You can cover that up. <laughs> but on the other side of articulation, you know, because it's all money based, the paint apps, and I'm sure you guys do these amazing paint apps when you're designing them. How often do you have to go to bat to be like, no, it needs this paint app to make the figure, you know, something the fans are going to want versus them kind of trying to work on their budget? Um, well, when it's us, um, when it's our own stuff, I mean, when it's, when it's for another company, we have to adhere to what they want. Like paint apps are the most expensive part of, of producing an action figure, um, outside of package design. Some of the packaging stuff is expensive, but the actual production of the plastic and the assembly and stuff isn't nearly as expensive as when you start building up extra numbers of paint apps. So Larger companies um, may want you to do less paint apps or be more creative on how the paint apps are placed in order to, to keep the cost fairly low. But for us, we paint them at the studio the way we want them to be painted. We want them to look good, and then they get sent over to the factory, and the factory nails it almost every time. So we just we don't pay attention that much to the paint apps because we know in the end what this figure is going to look like, and we I mean we we know in advance what we can do with the figure and kind of what the cost is going to be. But we have um, uh, Legion Builder figures that actually have a lot less paint apps specifically for the reason of collectability. I mean, these are called Mythic Legions. We want people to build their own legions of characters. And you can buy these um, Legion Builders at a much lower price point because they have less paint apps than our regular figures. So it's it's... You know, it depends on the application, and it depends on if you're doing it for yourself or you're doing it for another company. That will decide on, you know, what the paint apps are going to be. Yeah, because I'd gladly pay an extra 5 to $10 a figure to get paint on the front and back sometimes. Because you, you always yeah. get that, uh-huh. that front paint, and then you flip the figure around, and it's like... Did they forget this? Did it not go through? <laughs> like the uh, the vintage Masters of the Universe figures where they'd only paint like the glove on the front and the back would just be blank. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> uh, no, the Masters of the Universe, with it having its resurgence right now and you having early ties to it, mm-hmm. um, do you have anything in the future that you're going to be working on? projects with them you working on anything now as of right now no the most recent thing that we did with them was the um some of the origins masters of the universe Origins stuff we did for them but i they but they they've released some stuff since then that we haven't worked on so they must be working with another company on that and then um the uh moss man for the uh, masters of the universe revelation line we did that for them and i think that that was originally that like a Thanks, I love, man. I love I it. That. It's awesome. Thanks. We went back and forth with Mattel a lot on that, exactly how it should be done. They had a lot of input on that, and it, it turned out really, really good. But um, that we did that figure, I think it was, we were doing that, and another company was doing a He-Man or something as a an early pitch thing, and it eventually became a, the actual action figure. We thought that, you know, later on, if they wanted to do us, us to do work on the line, they would contact and say, okay, now go ahead and redo Mossman, but they didn't. They went ahead and used that one, so that was kind of cool. Well, I miss, and maybe it's just me, I wish we could get more of it in Toys Now, the gimmicky things we used to get with that toys back in the original Masters of the Universe or the original like WWF figures or even like the Dick Tracy figures, like the 
you know, different things where the flocking on this one or stink war or the gears inside of, you know, Roboto, like those were so cool. Why do you think we're not seeing as much of that anymore? Well, I agree with you. The kind of gimmicks that you mentioned, I like too. I I like seeing that kind of stuff on figures. The the things that I don't like are like the spring loaded waist or a big button in the back to make the arm move, things like that. I've never liked that. So when we started doing the 2000X He-Man, um, we were avoiding some of that kind of stuff. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think maybe a lot of action figures today are maybe aimed more at um, adult collectors than they are kids. And a lot of adult collectors would rather see form over function when it comes to like action figures, that kind of thing. I would rather see you know a nicely articulated and sculpted figure um, before I would want any sort of a, a cool function that might uh, detract from the design of the figure itself. So I kind of understand that, and that may be the purpose. I don't know for sure. Why. So there's no chance of your Moss Man being flocked? Our Moss Man? What do you mean our Moss Man? We don't have a Moss Man. We have a Barophidus, and he's trying to flocked. See, trying to see if we can get something out of you. Like <laughs> we have a, uh... He's being sneaky. Don't let it... This is why I called him an asshole in the beginning. He's being sneaky. Don't let him do it. <laughs> We have a Barathidus in Mythic Legions that's green and flocked, so maybe check him out. <laughs> it's green and flocked. Yeah, I, I wanted uh, to ask you, Eric. Uh, yes, sir. Amongst your crew, amongst you guys, you and the other horsemen, um, you each came together because you have very particular skill sets that work together really well. Yes. From what I've read, um, and I was curious, is like. <laughs> I was waiting for it. <laughs> it did get very waiting. Uh, not waiting. Oh, I'm taking. <laughs> I wanted to ask, what was what was your contribution that we would see from the line of toys that you're going to put out, and also what was your most challenging project to date? Um, the, what I was doing is I was I come from a machine shop background. I mean, I I'm artistic and I could do design work and that kind of stuff, but I worked in a machine shop most of my life, so I, I'm able to use lathes and mills and a, a number of machines to create all kinds of like mechanical intricate pro- uh, uh, products. And, and uh, a lot of what I did when I was in McFarlane Toys was create like a lot of acce- the accessories the characters had, or as I was speaking about earlier, any like mechanical aspects of the characters. A lot of times Eric would sculpt some of that stuff in, but he would need mm-hmm. like some gears or, or pods or something to go in that fit there. And then I would make all those and they would go in there. Or I would completely create like... Um, Trapjaw for the the Masters of the Universe uh, 2000X line, I would completely create that big mechanical arm. Eric actually sketched it out and designed it, and I took that and ran with it and kind of made it my own. Um, But that's the kind of stuff, that was my value to the company is that I could do that. Plus, I could sculpt a little bit. I was nowhere near the level that Eric has, you know, I've never been near the the level of Eric. He's just unbelievable. But um, I could sculpt, and then I could paint, and None of it was as good as my fabrication uh, stuff. So that's what that's what I was really valuable to the company for. And then, um, what was the next part of the question? Oh, what was your biggest like? What was your oh, toughest challenge? Like toughest? Wow, that's a that's that's a hard one. Um, oh, I know what it is. I don't think it was ever released. Mattel had us do this big exoskeleton suit for uh, Batman one time. And it wow. was huge. It was for, I think it was for that animated series, The Batman, that had the yeah. really cool uh, opening 
theme song. I love that. But video. it was this, yeah, yeah, it was this great big Batman exoskeleton suit that you could actually pull down the front and he would fit in and close it. They've released a few figures like in the um, they have that little kids line. Can't remember what it's called right now, but they're the little chunky um, figures. Like the Imagine X or whatever. Imagine X, yeah. They've done some some uh, big robots that kind of look like that thing. So I'm wondering if they don't still have that big prototype over at Mattel. And they say, well, let's make it look like that, change it up a little bit. But that, I don't think that ever saw the light of day. But yeah, that, that line was cool because it was huge. kind of kid based. Like the cartoon was a little bit more kiddie, like Bear, Bear the Batman, yeah. but still dark enough where adult collectors could enjoy it. Yeah, I love the animation style of that. We did a few characters from that. I think we did the Riddler and Catwoman and a few other Batman himself. And I love the design style in that uh, that series. I really wish it would have done better and could have gone longer. And it was a decent series. I watched it. It was kind of cool. So I tried to get Mauer to start watching that series. Yeah, it took me a little I finally watched it. The, the Joker voice threw me off. That's Kevin mm-hmm. Michael Richards. Mm-hmm. He's as an awesome deep as it actor. was... Like, right, he, he was, was that like kind a, of punched over Joker with a yeah, gigantic yeah. head of hair. More, looked more like the Creeper than the Joker. It yeah, did look like yeah, the Creeper. Yeah, 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 it did. Yeah, it Every time he talked, it was like getting punched in the face because you're like, wait, I've never imagined the Joker's voice being that. Right, yeah. But it, it was a good show. I, yeah. I have a question that doesn't have anything to do with toys, but it's more <laughs> the Four Horsemen logo on your page, incorporating uh-huh. all the different things. Where did that come from? Who designed it? Because it's one of the coolest logos I've ever seen in my life. I would imagine it's probably Eric. You're talking about on, on SourceHorseman.com? Yep, it's got the wings on the top of it. It looks like the horse's head. Oh, okay. That's the, uh, yeah, that's... So what we do... I'm sorry, I'm going over to SourceHorseman.com to see... <laughs> to make sure that I'm uh, talking about... Oh, I, I spelled it for Hoseman. How do I misspell my own company's name? <laughs> Quick, somebody go buy fourhoseman.com. <laughs> there we go. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, the one that we have up there now is the more, um, I guess, graphic-looking version. It's not the – the Mythic Legions version, I think, is the one you're talking about, that instead of the ears, it has, like, the, the wings coming yeah. out of it. So what we decided to do, like, early on – the Four Horsemen logo was like four little horse head skull symbols. And we went through a couple of iterations to that. And that really was only used as like the header of our uh, invoices going over to Mattel. <laughs> we hadn't used it for anything else until we released the Commander Argus figure. And then we created a new logo that was like a horse head skull with like a little uh, semi-circle around it. And then it that was our, our logo for that. And over the years... That's changed and evolved a little bit as the company's changed and evolved. And every time we've created a new um, uh, property that we've released, like or or worked on a property like Outer Spacemen and um, Gothatropolis, Seventh Kingdom, we create a new logo, Four Horsemen logo, based on that property. We created one for Mythic Legions. That's the one that you're yep. referring to, and it has a very kind of like medieval kind of look to it. It has those wings instead of the ears, and it's kind of rough and we've done a a more futuristic uh alien looking one for cosmic legion so that logo eric comes up with the logo design well it's cool because it's very you get you know what it is when you see it but it's still different enough to match the theme that it's in Um, 
You have a Krampus ugly sweater. I'm buying that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we do. Yes, we do. Krampus is amazing. All right. <laughs> so good. And over the years, you've now, you've got your own thing. So you have complete creative control over that. Um, and you've been working where DC saying change this. What IP would you love to get your hands on? And if you've thought about it, do you have any ideas that you'd like to put into a specific IP? That's my easiest question ever. Fantastic Four. I mean, I've I've always said wow. that Fantastic Four is Full my circle. yeah be all end all. They're my favorite um, superhero team. The Thing is my favorite superhero character. Marvel superhero character. DC. It's uh, Shazam, which I actually have one over here. Nice. Uh, Mezco One Twelve Shazam. My favorite uh, DC character. But um, if we were ever to get a chance to do, we have actually done some Fantastic Four figures for Toy Biz back in the day, but they were based on their specific designs, so we had to adhere to their designs. Um, they were still cool, but they were not what we would have done. We What we would have done, we would have done, we love John Burns' era of Fantastic Four. We love, you know, obviously Jack Kirby's uh, era of Fantastic Four. So I think if we did Fantastic Four ourselves and we were allowed, hey, guys, here's the Fantastic Four. Do what you want with it. Uh, oh, we also recently did the Doctor Doom figure for Mezco, which was a dream come true for That's me. You? One of my, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was an instant buy for me. Oh, cool. Thanks, man. We didn't get to work on the Fantastic Four figures, but we got to work on the Doctor Doom figure. And I, uh, that was like, well, my current favorite toy line and my favorite uh, supervillain of all time. That's It's a must. But anyway, um, we would take probably like Marvel and DC and kind of combine them into, or not Marvel and DC, um, Kirby and Byrne, and combine them into like our version of the Fantastic Four. That'd be cool. Um, you know what? One second. Oh, yeah. I have it right here. So a long time ago for Christmas, Eric Treadway sculpted, unbeknownst to me, a thing figure for me. And so this thing here, there are only two of these in existence and this is just a uh, uh this is like oh, our wow. version kind of of what the thing would look like it's like very john byrne style very jack kirby style wow. it is articulated you can see the blue in his yep. elbow here well that's because these are um this is just a casting we uh it is articulated at like the hips it has like v crotch and then it has Ball joint elbows, ball joint shoulders, has a ball joint head here. And he doesn't do much, but it's... Uh, but it looks cool. Yeah, and it's six-inch scale. It's my favorite thing figure of all time. Does he have protruding eyebrows? And so, yeah. <laughs> He's actually... He sculpted this in clay, Eric did, and um, now he said he's working on a new one um, using ZBrush because he works completely in ZBrush now. And That's so he's redoing the whole thing, you know, in his spare time <laughs> when he's sleeping. <laughs> and we don't really have spare time much anymore. But this is my favorite toy in my collection so far. And I don't think that anything's ever going to top that. But uh, it's, it's just molded and cast in urethane. It's not a production piece. So there's only two of them on the planet. He made one for himself as well. Would, you, would you gimmick any of them? Like a clear, invisible woman <laughs> and maybe a stone textured thing? Um, yes. The thing would be more like this, where he's 
somewhat smooth. We give him some some texture and stuff, but it wouldn't be too much because the classic John classic, Byrne yeah. and Jack Kirby thing, it would have like little pock marks here and there and some cracks and stuff, but not too textured. But yeah, we'd definitely do clear with Invisible Woman and and uh, we'd make some stretched arms and body parts and stuff for <laughs> Mr. Fantastic. And awesome. uh, yeah, it would be very classic looking if we were able to do it. All right. Well, when uh, Mezco finally releases Doctor Doom, I'm gonna have to uh-huh. send it over for you guys to sign because <laughs> I'm not the biggest Fantastic Four fan. You know, we talk about it on the show all the time. They are the royal family of Marvel Comics. Yep. So you have to appreciate them. Yep. Uh, but Doctor Doom, on the other hand, is one of my favorite characters of all time. So when yeah. I saw that come up and it wasn't in a box set, I was like, "Order! It's it's mine." Yeah, it's just amazing. Yeah, he's like when it comes to uh, Marvel villains, he's definitely top tier. Oh, I think or when it comes to villains in general, or he- yeah, or heroes, <laughs> or heroes. Oh, so you just showed, you just you just showed us your favorite figure in your collection here. What's the favorite figure that you've ever worked on? Ooh. Hmm. Yeah, between one. your children yeah right <laughs> I, yeah that's kind of tough i'd probably say that 2000x trap jaw oh because okay. there was so much work that went that got put into that one left mechanical arm of his um that cygor from uh cygor 2 from mcfarland toys i really look, liked working on that one a lot too but that one from from the 2000X series, uh, Trapjaw. That's probably my favorite. I love that figure still, to, even to this day. I would love to redo it, at, you know, with more articulation and a regular six-inch scale and stuff. I would love to redo that figure at some point. I just sent an image to of it to the rest of the guys so they could see it if they weren't aware of how badass that Trapjaw was. <laughs> Thanks. Yes. Giant, ridiculous arm that no human <laughs> could ever possibly lift and use, but it was still cool. Well, I know you said that um, that free time is hard to come around nowadays, so we appreciate you coming on the show. But I have to ask, before before we wrap up, I have to ask, if you were trying to break into the, like, if you wanted to become a toy designer, and you're just starting out, what would be the couple steps that you should take now? What are the things that you should be working on now to get into a position that you've gotten to? Get into digital sculpting immediately. Like even if you're you want to come in and and do just design work and you don't want to do sculpting work, right now when we do um, like rough designs and stuff, Eric jumps onto ZBrush and like sketches it out in ZBrush, a three dimensional sketch faster than he could do it with a pencil and paper. He still does a lot of pencil and paper sketching and I do too, but um, I'm just learning ZBrush myself now, and it's a pain in the butt. Uh, learning it at first, like some of the some of the moves you have to make, but once you learn it, it all starts com- kind of falling into place. There's a lot of frustrating aspect uh, aspects of it, but ZBrush or Freeform is another sculpting program that uh, uh, some of our sculptors use. Um, there are limitations and advantages to both, but and if you learn them both, that's spectacular. You can use both and you really have the best of both worlds. But I would say start doing that now and. When you show your port, put a nice portfolio together. When you show your portfolio to a company, you know, email them, send them the link to it, or even physically mail them a portfolio of your stuff, whatever you do, follow up on that. 
you know, send it to them, say thank you, wait a month or so, and follow up and say, hey, have you had a chance to look at my portfolio yet? There's a lot of times where we'll get a portfolio submission in, and I'll look at it and say, this is great. We don't need any help right now, and I'm really busy, so I can't really get back to you on this right now, but I will, and then I, com I completely forget about it. And then later on, you know, we'll say, oh, we, we uh, need, you know, we need this kind of sculpting done. Wait, there was a guy who contacted us a month ago. Where was that? And I'm stupid. I don't remember to put that kind of stuff in a special folder or whatever. <laughs> so follow up, like, because you can't expect a toy company who's actively working on, on stuff all the time. I mean, you should be able to expect them to keep track of your stuff, but you can't expect them to because some of them are dumb like me. And follow up and say, hey, I sent this to you a while back and send them, include the link again and say, I was wondering if, uh, you know, you guys um, would need any help now. And that'll help them keep remember. Be, be persistent. Mm -hmm. Don't be obnoxious, but be persistent and, you know, let them know. And I'm if out. you're looking for, <laughs> yeah, if you're looking for a critique on your work, you might not get it. Because I don't like giving critiques to people on, on their work because I have, have had people get upset when I give them honest, you know, straightforward critiques. So I don't like yeah, doing gonna, that. They're going to have a hard yeah. time. <laughs> it's going to be a rough life then if you can't take critiques. Yeah, I don't like that. Um, so if you can't take a critique, don't send a portfolio my way because <laughs> if you ask for my opinion, I will give you my opinion. I don't I don't usually offer it without, without provocation. But if you ask for it, you're going to get it. And if you can't handle what I tell you, then sorry. Yeah, the then we definitely don't need you. you because yeah. yeah, we definitely don't need you doing workforce because um, if we are working with a client and the client comes back with um, revisions on a project and you get upset about it, I can't help you there. I don't have uh, you know I don't have any other further work for you then because that happens all the time. Them with the uh, them with the DC rep who is marking yeah. up the. <laughs> what yeah. are you doing? Yeah. Oh, trust me. Internally, amongst amongst us at Four Horsemen, there that was going on. What is going on here? And then we make the changes. And we're like, oh, oh I get so it. then after that, when he'd pull out his exacto and start scraping, we were we were okay with it. You know, we're like, all right, you know, it's kind of scary seeing somebody else just digging into your work when they're not actually a sculptor, but the guy had a vision and knew what he was doing. So you yeah, say he, you said he had an exacto knife, right? Yeah. So he just had one in his desk ready to go. <laughs> I think that, yeah, I think that um, it was a, a big uh, table, and I think that he, um, that was his job was to do approvals gotcha. on uh, sculpted projects. So maybe maybe he just had one there just for that. Or like maybe some people got, got rowdy with him when he uh, gave him critiques. So <laughs> pulls out his blade and says, come on. I don't know. Well, but yeah, we, he had one there. The we could probably talk DC. to you. For like four hours about toys, you mm -hmm. know, but we're going to let you go. Right. Um, I will probably be hitting you up again sometime in the future because we didn't even get into packaging stuff. Uh, one of my favorite facts is the original Motu line had the artist Dave Stevens do a lot of their packaging, um, yeah. which if anybody who doesn't know is the guy that created the Rocketeer and was probably one of the nicest human beings in the art world you know, out there. And he, one of the things he loved doing was the moat too. So your packaging is also beautiful. And I'm assuming it's in house that you guys do it. Nate, Nate Barch does all of our, um, the, like the painting work that's on our packaging. Yeah. Uh, Nate Barch, who's a tremendous artist. He's doing work with Mattel now, like after all these years, 
his his uh, favorite property is either Star Wars or or Masters Universe. It might be a toss up with him, but he's doing some uh, packaging artwork with Mattel for uh, Masters Universe. So yeah, Nate's Nate's our guy, our in house guy for that. Us in box collectors appreciate you, Nate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, it's good. Oh, you're an in box collector. You're one of those guys. I didn't realize I'm that. Both. <laughs> one, of those, one of those guys. He buys. He, no, 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 no. No, he's not just both. He buys three. He doesn't yeah, buy one buy to three. open one. Nice. He buys three. The third. Oh, you know what? I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I will say that I am an in box collector for those. Little three and three quarter inch um, Hasbro Marvel kit figures are doing right now. The retro style ones. I do have mm-hmm. a an Invisible Woman and because their packaging um, is dope. That's <laughs> but I the, the reason that's not the reason I leave them in the packaging. Yep, I haven't pulled them out because I don't really have a use for a three and three quarter inch figures with five point of articulation. So it looks to me it looks better in the package than it would out on my shelf loose. So I just leave it in the package and they're still just like laying. Open. <laughs> laying on a shelf i'll actually hang them on the wall or something once they release mr fantastic and the thing but those i'll be those keeping just, in the packaging thing was just I almost never. It, so yeah i saw that it looks cool for a retro thing yeah it does everything that's released i have my gripes and what i would like to see changed <laughs> on it, of course, well we'll get into that and maybe we'll have some sort of uh legit debate on on open box versus closed box and you can be the judge of our little debate on it that would be um, sorry but you'll, you'll lose that one yeah <laughs> sorry I on, if i'm already. a judge shut up and play with no. it menti do that thing you can find the show welcome to fireside everywhere online that's a welcome to fireside of your social media choice unless it's twitter which is fireside crew and we appreciate all the support that you've been giving us so thank you very much for the comments uh the rating on on itunes the whole nine yards thank you very much uh once again i'm menti i'm I'm features and i'm mr mauer don't forget to check us out on welcome to fireside.com that's the spot that you're gonna find us (laughs) and interact with us as much as possible Corn boy, where can we yes, find you? Sourcehorseman.com. Our uh, online retail outlet is storehorseman.com. Pretty creative, huh? That's awesome. <laughs> but sourcehorseman.com is the main hub for all things uh, for horsemen. You find a lot of Mythic Legions info there, a lot of Cosmic e- uh, Legions info there, links to everything. Um, and that's where we're at. That's our main place. Awesome. awesome. And in multiple toy groups interacting with us fans. Yeah, being um, a nerd. Being a nerd. Thank you so much <laughs> for giving us time out of your busy schedule. It was a pleasure. And uh, we will see everybody soon. Thank Deuces. you. This is fun, guys. Goose days. Oh, yeah.